love, John says. Love, love, love. He mentions it multiple times throughout this passage and throughout the letter of 1 John that we've been studying for the last several weeks. And love is a um, peculiar word in the English language, right? Because it, it carries such a broad range of meanings. I love coffee. I love coffee. I love bagels. I love burritos. I love fall weather. Amen? I love my reading chair at home, even though our apartment's too small for it. We cram it in there so I can read in it. I love wearing hoodies this time of year. Anybody else? I love the music of Bob Dylan and you too. I love sports documentaries. I love running. I love teaching the Bible. I love being a pastor. I love this country. I love this city. I love this church. I love my children and I love my wife. We use the word for all sorts of things. In the English language, the word love has a wide range of meaning, and you can love beef jerky, and you can love your spouse, right? <laughs> and we understand the, the intensity of love based on the object that it is directed towards. But in the Greek language, which the New Testament was written, uh, there are actually four words for love, which is far more helpful than the English way, because we know what kind of love someone is talking about by the word they use. Um, there are four words for love in the Greek language. The first is storge. Um, that is general affection or enjoyment of something. So I storge watching YouTube videos of Jimi Hendrix guitar solos. I love it. Uh, I storge walking along the high line on a Saturday morning. And then, so that's storge love. I, I love, you know, I love this restaurant. That's storge love. And then there's phileo love, the city of Philadelphia is, comes from this word, the city of brotherly love. This is friendship love. I phileo Maria. I phileo John. I phileo Barbara. You are my friends. I love you in a phileo type of way. We're friends. Uh, then there is eros. That's romantic love. And I eros my wife, Rebecca, and only my wife, Rebecca. But the word that the Apostle John uses when speaking of the love of God for us and the love in which we ought to show others as his followers is agape love, Christ-like love, unconditional love, sacrificial love. This is what John is talking about when he says, beloved, which is the noun version of agape, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We love because he first loved us, is what John says. Beloved, agape, if God so agaped us, we also ought to agape one another. We agape because he first agaped us. Now, how has God loved us? What is this agape love? What exactly is it? Because if we want to love others as God has loved us, we must first comprehend the degree in which he has loved us and what this agape love entails. John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. John says that love flows from God 
and that God is love. That is who God is. It is at the center, the core of his character. John doesn't say that God is loving. John doesn't say that God does loving things. God doesn't, uh, John doesn't say that love is an activity which God does. John says that God is love. It's who he is. It's his personality. He is love. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, he says, You being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I love that image. The height and the depth and the breadth and the length and the vastness of God's Love. We sing that song often, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast, beyond all measure. You know, every summer, I take my kids to Coney Island multiple times. That's, that's what we do. Um, my children, what they'll often do is we get to the beach, and they run out into the water, and they begin wading out into the ocean. And they're laughing, and they're swimming, and they're having fun, and then all of a sudden, they get to a point where the water is chest high, and it starts to lift their legs off of the ground. And they'll look at me and they'll say, Daddy, the ocean is so deep. And I look beyond my children and I see the vastness of the ocean. And I think, child, you have no idea how deep the ocean truly is. And we are like little children treading water in the nasty waters of Coney Island. We're saying God's love is deep, yet we cannot fathom how unbelievably great God's love is for us. Psalm 103, King David says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. I love that analogy. For as high as the heavens are above the earth. How do you measure that? Scientists have tried. And to get to the edge of our galaxy, the Milky Way, traveling at the speed of light would take you 100,000 years. Uh, Scientists tell us that light travels at 186,282.2 miles per second, which is so fast that in the time that I snap my fingers, light has traveled around the globe half a dozen times. And scientists tell us that traveling at that speed, it would take you 100,000 years to get to the end of our galaxy. And some scientists suggest that there might be close to 2 trillion galaxies, most of which, which are bigger than ours. And to get to the edge of the known universe, they say that if you were traveling at the speed of light, it would take you roughly 15 billion years. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. That is the analogy that David uses to explain God's love for you and me. His love is deep. His love is wide. God loves you more than you can ever comprehend. And so just uh, before we go any further If you are walking in here with any doubts whether God loves you, just receive this for a moment. He loves you. He loves you. 
For as high as the heavens are above the, the earth, so great is the Father's love toward those who fear him. But it's one thing to say, I love you, right? Um, it's a whole other thing to show someone that you love them. I could tell somebody, hey, I love you, man. But I would need to show them for them to truly understand my love for them. It's one thing to say I love you. It's another thing altogether to demonstrate it. In her book, Bird by Bird, Anna Lamott tells a story of an eight-year-old boy. <laughs> and his sister, this eight-year-old boy, his sister was dying of leukemia. And the doctor said that without a blood transfusion, uh, this little girl would, would die. And so the doctor said, we need a blood transfusion. And so every member of the family uh, gets their blood tested. And they find out that only this eight-year-old son, this eight-year-old brother, matches her blood type. And the parents said, well, son, if, uh, if your sister doesn't get this blood transfusion, she will die. Uh, your blood matches hers. Would you be willing to donate your blood to your sister? And he said, well, mom, uh, dad, can I have the night to think about it? And so the little boy goes to bed. He wakes up the next morning, comes down for breakfast. He says, mom, dad, um, I, I'll do it. I'll do it. And so the next day they go to the hospital and they enter the hospital room and he sits in a chair next to his sister. The nurse plugs up the needles and everything and begins taking blood from him and putting it into his sister. And the doctor comes in to check in on them and says, hey, son, how you doing? How you, how you guys doing? How you guys doing? He said, we're doing okay, doctor. And this little eight-year-old boy looks up at the doctor and says, uh, doctor, uh, how soon until I begin to die? The little boy, he thought that by giving his blood, he was giving his life for his sister. Now listen, a little boy can tell his sister, I love you. But that little sister will never doubt it because her brother showed, demonstrated his love for her and that he was willing to give it all. And John tells us that what we know, that what, that John tells us that we know that God is love because he has demonstrated his love for us. And how has God demonstrated his love for us? John tells us in verse nine, he says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. He says, if you doubt God's love, here's the proof that God loves you. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus himself said to his disciples, greater love has none than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. How do you know God loves you? you look to the cross of Christ. How do you know God loves you? You look to his broken and pierced body. You look to his head that had a crown of thorns pressed on it. How do you know that God loves you? You look to the cross of Jesus where his blood was poured out. How do you know that God loves you? You look at Jesus hanging on the cross, speaking to those killing him, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. How do you know God loves you? You look to the cross of Jesus. And you see, God's love, we can sit there, we hear that, and we go, oh, his love is vast. 
He gave everything for us. He gave his life for us. He spilled his blood for us. But God's love was never meant to be something we receive for ourselves and keep it there. Uh, God's love was never meant to be something that we receive and then not do anything about it. We were, we were meant to receive his love and then show it to others. I mean, think about that little sister whose brother thought he was giving his life for her. How tragic would it be if she left that hospital room, got healthy again, went to school, and started bullying her classmates? It'd be like, little girl, you have no idea what your brother gave for you. It would be illogical. It would be, it would be tragic for her to not live a life of love after she was shown so much love. And the same is true for you and me. God has demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And what a tragedy it would be to go, thank you, Jesus, and then walk out those doors and withhold love to the people around us. What a tragedy that would be. John says in chapter 3, verse 16, he says, By this we know, love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, John says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. I love that he says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. You know what I think he's saying there? You know the people who are like, I love people. I love the poor. I care about the poor. I love diversity. Uh, yeah? What are their names? What have you done to show them that you love them? It's one thing to say, oh, I love people. Okay. What are their names and how have you shown your love to them? Let us not love the world in word or in talk, but in deed and truth, John says. And he says, God is love, but then he says, we love because he first loved us. John says, if you have experienced the love of God, you will show his love to those around you. Not, if you've experienced the love of God, you might show the love of God to others. Or if you've experienced the love of God, you should. Or if you've experienced the love of God, you, you, you ought to want to. John says, if you have truly come into an experience of the living God who has given his son for your life, you will love others. And he says, if you don't love others, it's a sign that you never quite understood the love of God for you. And so go back to step one. John tells us that our love proves two things. First, he says, our, the way we love others is the evidence of our personal faith. You say you love God, great. Show me how you love others. You can say you love God, but if you don't love others, John says there's actually no evidence that you really love God. And he says this multiple times throughout this letter. I'm just going to read a few times that he says all throughout the, God, the letter of 1 John. Uh, chapter, one, or chapter 4, verse 8, in our text today, he says, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God is love. If you don't love, then you don't know God. Verse 20, he says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how could you love God whom you have not seen? In chapter 2, verse 9, John says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother, you're actually still in darkness. 
Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. In chapter 3, verse 11, he says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 14, chapter 3, verse 14, he says, We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brothers. These verses ought to cause us to pause and take assessment of our lives. Do I really love God? Remember, John wrote this letter in chapter 5. He says, I'm writing this letter to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, so that you may know that you are saved or you may know that you know God. And so you ask the question, do I really love God? This is a test that John gives us for us to assess our lives to go, do I know God? Do you really love God? And the, this, the, the, the test for your heart is this. In what ways are you loving actual people? I heard one teacher say that at your funeral, will the people present be certain that you loved God by the way that you loved them? Will they go, that was a man or that was a woman that knew God? Because I knew, I experienced God's love in the way that they loved me. See, your love for others is the very evidence that proves the authenticity of your faith. Now look at this. He, uh, John, this isn't in First John, but this is in the Gospel of John. Chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So love is the evidence of personal faith, but also love is the evidence of the transforming power of the gospel to the world. Uh, Jesus says, the world will know who I am. The world will know my character. The world will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. So what, what, what John says and what Jesus says is that the world, the, the greatest way to preach the gospel to the world is for us to love each other really, really well. It's the best way. That is a better sermon than any sermon I could ever preach. That's a better song than any song our worship team could ever sing. That's better than any Bible study. That's if you want this city to know the love of Christ, the first step is for us to love one another really well and then for us to love our neighbors really well. And we want the people, this is what we want. We want the people of Brooklyn to know the love and the compassion of Christ. But Jesus says the only way they'll know that is by, through our love. And that statement that Jesus made, he made that in, during his final meal with his disciples. And that meal, that, that, those, that statement that Jesus made, it made quite an impact on John. So much so that if you go read John, the Gospel of John, chapter 13 through 17, and then read 1 John, you realize that you're like, John's just re-summarizing re everything Jesus told him. He's re-summarizing for us everything that Jesus told him in John 13 through 17. And John never got over that lesson. You, the world will know that you're my disciples by the way that you love me. As I have loved you, so love others. John never got over that. And not just John, but all the disciples. Man, the disciples... They loved one another, despite massive differences between them. 
you read the Gospels and you start paying attention to the personalities of these disciples. And at once again, I don't love Christian movies, but The Chosen, boy, what a show. And it captures uh, the, the personalities of the disciples really well. But you've got Peter. Peter was a walking contradiction. One day, he's like the most courageous disciple, ready to chop people's ears off for Jesus. And the next day, he is so cowardly, denying Jesus to a teenage girl around a campfire. And you know that that sort of wishy-washy, like walking contradiction annoyed the rest of the disciples. Because they're like, one day you got this swagger, you're acting all cocky. The next day, you know, you're, you're weak. They're like, man, pick a, run, pick a lane and run in it, man. But then there's John. He was always talking about how much Jesus loved him. John introduces himself all throughout the Bible as the disciple whom Jesus loved. You know that had to get under some of those guys' skin. They're like, he loves us too, John. You're not the only one, buddy. And John was, they're like teacher's pet, you know? And then there's James, John's brother, always showing signs of superiority. He thinks he's better than the rest of the disciples, nudging Jesus. Hey, Jesus, I'm going to be like the top dog when you're gone, right? You know? That annoyed the rest of the group. You had Matthew, who was a tax collector, Simon, who was a zealot, two political polar opposites, political ideologies. These guys would have hated each other if it had not been for Jesus. But Jesus loved these guys, and they were transformed by his love, and he taught them how to love one another. And because of their love for one another, despite massive differences, and even their love for, the, for their enemies, these 12 men changed the entire history of the world because of their love for one another. Church, the way that we love one another is the clearest proof to the world that what we say we believe is true. Hypocrisy within the church will erase to the world anything we say about God's character. We must demonstrate his love in the way we love one another. See, the first and clearest implication of the gospel of Jesus is that if you understand the goodness and the sacrifice of Jesus... If you understand God's love, you will love others. That is the first and clearest implication of the love of Jesus. You love others because he has loved you first. And that's not just how we love one another, but that's how we love the world around us. That's even how we love our enemies and how we love difficult people. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you have been asked to love a difficult person in your life? It's hard, isn't it? And there are really two types of people that are difficult to love. There are those who drain you. Maybe you know these type of relationships. And then there are those who hate you. And it's hard to love those two types of people. Um, those who drain you, those are the people who you give and you give and you give and you give and you pour out and you pour out and they never give anything in return. And you're tempted, when you come in contact with someone like that, you're tempted to withhold love from them, withhold time from them, because you know that if you enter into the messiness of their lives, they will take, 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 take all your energy, and they won't give any back. Yet, this is what Jesus has done for us, isn't it? We offer nothing to him, and yet he gives himself fully for us. So we love difficult, draining people. But it's also difficult to love those who hate you. And it's difficult to love those you might be tempted to hate yourself. We live in a world right now where everything's polarized. A lot of disagreement along everything. And you know, one of the things that greatly burdens me right now at this moment in history that we live in 
is the hostility, the anger, and the utter lack of kindness that people in our culture show toward others who disagree with them. Um, There's so much talk right now about political polarization. There's all these lines that have been drawn. Sides have been taken on almost every issue. And it's like we're just fighting each other to death. And I don't know where the end of it is. Like it just, it feels like we're imploding as a nation right now. And it seems like we're using every ounce of our energy to shame, mock, destroy, and cancel anybody who thinks, believes, or behaves differently from us. Cable news, social media, corporations, and politicians are more than ready and willing to manipulate your fear and your anxiety and your anger to provoke you to hostility toward your enemies for their ends. It's toxic. It's tearing families apart. It's tearing friendships apart. It's tearing churches apart. And it's tearing our nation apart. And as a pastor, what grieves me the most is how so many Christians are taking their cues from this thing on cult- from culture rather than from the clear commands of Jesus in regard to how we treat our enemies and those we disagree with. I got off Facebook because of this. Because I was so sick of seeing people who claim the name of Jesus tear down and mock and belittle and shame and destroy the people they disagree with. We use our contempt, our anger, and our fear as justification to ignore the clear commands of Jesus to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And God have mercy on us for it. And here's the truth. I've got friends of just about every race, of every political persuasion, of every religion. I've got friends who are from New York City. I've got friends who are from rural backwoods areas, right? And in my conversations, here's what I've found. Nobody likes what's going on in our culture. Nobody actually likes all the polarization. Everybody I talk to on an individual level, they go, I hate this. Everyone wants to experience peace in their family, in their friendships, and in our nation. But here's the thing. Every group seems to be afraid to be the first one to offer a truce. Because they're afraid that if they show that kind of vulnerability, they will get trampled on. And so what we do is every side keeps entrenching ourselves and we keep digging in. And what our nation and what our culture needs right now is for a group of people to step up and to demonstrate love. And who better to do this than those who have been loved by God? We extend love to our enemies. We extend the love to those who disagree with us. We extend love to those who hate us. And we may get taken advantage of. So did Jesus. (laughs) He was nailed to a cross. But the only way the walls of hostility can be broken down is through the people of God giving ourselves to love rather than self-preservation. And that doesn't mean we compromise our convictions. That doesn't mean that we become weak or cowardly. It just means that we treat our enemies as people to be loved rather than enemies to be crushed. For the sake of the gospel, we must show the love of Christ to the world. This includes those who disagree with us, those who hate us, and those who drain us. Beloved, John says, if God so loved us, we we also ought to love one another. We love, John says, because he first loved us. Now, that's easier said than done, isn't it? How do we do it? 
How do we love? How do we love those within the Christian community? How do we love those within our church that annoy us? Because there are people in the church that we disagree with. It's okay. How do we love those outside of the world, outside of the church in the world that disagree with us and might hate us? And those who might even attack us. How do we love others when loving others is difficult? How do we love those who drain us and want to take from us without giving anything back? When you're faced with an opportunity to love a difficult person and it feels difficult to you, there are three questions you can ask yourself. The first is, who am I? Who am I? I am a sinner. You are a sinner. Who continually chooses your own preferences over God's clear commands. You, who are you? You are a sinner who deserves the judgment of God on your sin, yet in his love, God sent his son to take on your sin, die your death, and give you new life. And not only that, he has adopted you as his child. He has given you a new inheritance. He's given you a new name. He's given you a new family, and he's given you a new future. You offer nothing to God, yet he has given you everything. Who are you? Who am I? And when you answer that question rightly, it sure is hard to act and live from a place of superiority or contempt, isn't it? Or toxic anger. When you remember who you are and what God has done for you, it's hard to be contemptuous toward other people. And it's hard to be, uh, uh, be bitter and withhold forgiveness toward others. But the second question you ask is, who are they? Who are they? When you're faced with a choice to love a difficult person, ask yourself, who is this person? And they are just like you. They are a person loved by God, made in the image of God. They have flaws. They have emotions. They do things they wish they didn't do. The thing that they did to annoy you, they probably are beating themselves up over it at home. And they're going, I hate that I act that way. And I hate that I push people away. They get sad just like you. They get angry just like you. But they also have the same capacity for good and for joy just like you because they, like you, are made in the image of God. And in short, they're just like you. And when we remember that people are just like us, we're able to have compassion on them. So a couple of years ago, or a few years ago, several years ago actually, um, I was downstairs in my building getting my mail. So we, I was unlocking the mailbox and my neighbor saw me, and he comes out of his apartment to say hello to me. And I, I could tell he was, he was a little fidgety. He was upset about something. And he said, excuse me, sir, sir, do you, do you live in uh, apartment 2D? I said, yes, sir, I do. And then he put his finger in my chest, and he said, what is all that banging at 5.30 a.m.? And my son, who has cerebral palsy at the time, was four or five years old, and uh, he, he was unable to walk at that time. So what he would do is he would get out of bed, and the way he would get around the house is he would slap the floor and kind of scoot his butt along the floor. And that's what my neighbor was hearing. And I said, sir, I'm, I, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I said, you see, my son has cerebral palsy. He doesn't walk, and he just kind of scoots on the floor and bangs the floor. And he goes, he took his finger out of my chest. And he goes, hey... My daughter has cerebral palsy too. He said, don't worry about it. Forget I said anything. You see, when he realized we're the same, and listen, he had, we violated his mornings every day. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we had, He had a right to be upset at this violation of social norms. 
But when he knew that my situation was the same situation he was in, he said, hey, you know what? We'll make it work. The truth is, we're all sinners, and we're all trying to make our way through this world, and it's hard. And we all need love. And if we can understand that even our enemies and even those draining people are just like us, what greater ability we have to show compassion to them? Who am I? Who are they? And then finally, knowing who I am and knowing who they are, what does God's love compel me to do? And John tells us, beloved, if God so agape us, if, the, if God's love is as high as the heavens are above the earth, if God has so agape you and me that he was willing to send his son to die for us, we also ought to love one another. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we thank you for the vastness of your love. You have shown us great mercy and compassion in that while we were yet sinners, not, at, not when we stopped being sinners, not when we cleaned ourselves up, but while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. And so God, how selfish and how tragic would it be for us to receive your love and yet withhold it for others. And so God, I pray that you would teach us how to love. I pray, God, that you would, through your love for us, you would show us how to love others, that we would risk to love others, that we would enter into other people's pain to show them love, and that we would sacrifice so that they would know what it means to be loved by you. And so, God, we need strength. We need your spirit to do that. And so we ask for you to fill us so that we can love the world around us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.